welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. going so hey 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 everyone thanks for tuning in to another knock on podcast um for those of you who are on your morning commute on instagram or if you're having your morning coffee or whatever um you're also getting to watch this live right now what i'm going to do is um occasionally just kick on one of the live feeds for the podcast that way you guys can pretty much get to see the size the size of my head or the side of my head um, and then maybe get to see me point at things while I'm doing this podcast. Moving forward in the future, um, the p- whole podcast studio will actually be set up um, when it comes to the bow builds and things. It'll be set up actually in um, my personal little do- dojo. So as we're talking about some of these different things, I'll be able to um, show you guys watching the live feed exactly what I'm talking about so that's going to be pretty cool but I'm just jumping in on this list of um, questions that all of you sent in um, about what we should talk about on a podcast so we're on podcast 102 but we're pretty much still answering questions that you all sent in uh, back from 101 so it's kind of part two of 101 but uh, the first question I'm going to jump into here is from McPherson J2000 says, I'm really wanting to get into my competitions with my compound bow. Um, as long as I get my G2 next month, I was just wondering if you'd be able to do a podcast on all the different competitions, how the scoring works, and maybe include some of the different arrows I should use for each one. So that's a pretty, pretty complex question. Um, very, very detailed question. I do appreciate it. Um, certainly recognize your name, McPherson J2000. I appreciate all your support too. Um, so yeah, there's there's several different tournaments. I personally started out. My first tournaments were in 3D archery, just because I was a bow hunter first and really wanted to become better as a bow hunter. So I wanted to simulate bow hunting style scenarios, and I wanted to you know really get into becoming more efficient and better as as a as a hunter really so I wanted to to just really start to learn how to make shots based off judging yardage and having a variation in terrain variation in how your form is you know obviously you're shooting on side hills and poor stance and sometimes you got elevated shots there's a whole lot that goes into it but it was if you're a bow hunter, I would say the first thing that you should try is 3D archery. Certainly, um, certainly one of the best practices for any type of bow hunter that's new. Um, and I guess if I were to pick, if I were to pick, I would say you know the ASA tournaments are run really really well right now. And um, what I really like is what's going on with the known distance courses. Obviously, there's a certain element that you don't pick up um, as a learning bow hunter, which is really becoming proficient at judging distance. This is a critical element to being a hunter. 
less so now than it used to be. You know, you used to really have to know how to do that. Now everyone's got a rangefinder, so it's quite a bit different. But I would say if you start with the K50 um, or the known 50, just so that you can get an understanding of the targets and, you know, the rules and, um, you know, being able to get to understand where the scoring rings are and that sort of thing. It's a very good start, but I would also really encourage you that when you practice, you should practice with unknown distances at home. Um, you know, get yourself a 3D target or two or find a local club or range that you can join and really start to learn how to shoot on those targets and don't don't get accustomed to always using your rangefinder. One of the great techniques that I used to use to help me judge targets was I would actually go out and I would always judge the target first. I would be 100% comfortable with my number and then I would range the target immediately after and if I made a mistake with um, my yardage, I would try to use the rangefinder and determine where I made that mistake. So in other words, if I've got a target at 45 yards and maybe there's a big tree between me and that target and I thought that big tree was the halfway mark and I thought maybe that big tree was 25 yards. So I kind of thought, well, that's halfway. I doubled the distance and then I ended up misjudging the target by four or five, 10 yards. Then I would try to find out where I made that mistake. And the rangefinder is really, really critical for that. Now, the other thing that's important to using that technique is that you really make sure that your bow is shooting well and you get to learn how you're truly shooting. If you go out and you only practice on unknown targets, then chances are your scores are going to be lower. And it's, in my opinion, it's kind of a negative imprint on your brain because you're you're not seeing yourself shoot as accurate as you can. So I really like being able to know the distance after I've really done a good job of taking a guess at it, ranging the target, setting my sight properly, and then trying to use my binoculars to find out where the scoring ring is that I need to aim and then make that shot. And when I make that shot, then I actually know how I'm shooting. If you're putting in a bunch of unknown factors, like, you know, you don't know if your sight set's perfect, you don't know if the distance is right, you know, there's a lot of other factors there um, that will all, they're all going to transpire into you really not knowing how you truthfully did on the shot. So one really cool thing, I guess I'll announce that right now, is when the new web platform launches, there is going to be different, um, there's still going to be a free level, which is going to be like what we all have right now, um, or what you all have right now. But then there's also going to be some paid memberships um, levels that each of those levels is pretty much going to get you access to something that I'm doing that's really costing me time and money to invest in bringing you that information. Um, one of the things that I'm going to be doing is there's going to be a new, there's going to be 52 shots of the week. So I'm actually going to go out and each week I'm going to make one shot at a target that is going to be a target that has elements to it that require thinking and require you to process what you need to do at a tournament 
to make a good shot on that target. So I'll literally step to a stake that on a target I've never seen before. Most likely I'm going to find one of the most technical courses I can find somewhere on the globe. They may not even be from the U.S. Um, I may travel to some of the harder field courses in Europe to do this. But I'll actually step to that stake and talk to you about every single thing that's going through my mind and what I do to look at the target, maybe to range the target, things that I'm thinking about. Okay, you know, there might be times where I'm like, oh shit, I might need to, you know, just based on the fact, you know, say I was leading a tournament at that point or say I was two points behind, if the person in front of me stepped up and made a certain shot, there might be targets where, in, at least in my opinion, I, you know, I may say, I'm not going to be risky here. This is a very good target um, to play it safe, to play smart. Um, I'll talk to you about several different things that you can learn um, by using your binoculars on targets, different things that a lot of people don't pay attention to. So it's going to be literally shots of the week. That's going to be one cool thing that's going to that's going to become available. And it's really going to help all of you out there, especially someone in your position who hasn't shot a lot of tournaments, look at this and say, okay, when I go to the tournament, here's some things I need to make. So I would start with 3D, and from there, if you really want to start focusing on accuracy, then you move into the target realm. Now, depending on what you have for practice in your area, I would personally say that is what you should really um, key in on when it comes to um, if you have a good indoor range, then you might want to focus on indoor archery. If you don't have a good indoor range, and if say all you have is um, say all you have is uh, like an outdoor range or a field course close by, if that's what you've got, then I think that that it would be important for you at that point to really pick what you could practice at. Because for me to say, go ahead and do a full FIDA type range, I don't think that's really um, wise to do if you can't find a place to shoot 70 and 90 meters all the time. So, or if, for example, if I say, well, you should really get into field archery, if you don't have the ability to be able to shoot at 10 or 15 different targets and move targets around, then it gets really difficult for you to actually do that. Um, what I love about field archery, so there's two different kinds. There's feet of field, and there's also like more of an NAA or an NFAA field round. Um, they're all a little bit different. They're different on what type of spots. Um, I really always like the feet of field because you have one day of unknown targets and one day of known targets, and you're really shooting at only four field faces. You're shooting at a 20, 40, 60, and 80 centimeter face, and each size face allows you to only shoot at that target within a certain distance parameter so you really have the ability to say take your your little 20 centimeter bunny shots and you can practice those in your backyard you know up to 25 yards from 15 to 25 yards and you know that that's the distance that you're going to shoot them um, you know and then with the bigger 80 centimeter face you know that your max is going to be 60 the best thing to do, I mean, we'll literally have an entire podcast, but going through the rules. But what I can tell you is if you really want to elevate your technical game, then field archery is super good for 
elevating technical aspects of your shooting. Um, or if you want to just focus on accuracy and being repetitive in your shot, then you know target archery like a feet around where say you're shooting a 50 meter or if you can still find a full feet over you shoot up to 90 meters um, and then obviously like indoor archery you can shoot 20 yards or 18 meters and um, those are great places to start because you really just get to focus on repetition doing the same thing on the same target it does get boring it does get tedious that's you know that's part of the downside but that's also one of the important aspects to the mental side of it too is being able to maintain your composure by just doing something that's so repetitive like that it's almost like um, doing homework for me if I sit there and read a book too long I just fall asleep on the floor so um and sometimes archery is like that. If I sit there and I've spent three months shooting at a target at 18 meters, um, I feel like I could fall asleep doing that too. But that's part of it. You have to be able to really key in on focusing and not letting your mind slip because those are the people that are really the ones that are great versus the ones that are good. It's it's all the ones that um, are able to maintain that mental... Um, that mental composure for that amount of time. So I appreciate it. McPherson J 2000. And, uh, thanks for the question. Next question here is from, let's see, Hardy McLaren. Um, please explain the best anchor position in detail. Um, love the podcast. So it's kind of difficult to explain the anchor position when I'm doing a podcast, but what I can tell you is um, on the Knock On Archery uh, YouTube channel, there is, um, I know that I talked about this in the past, so I'm going to just try to look this up quick while I'm actually uh, podcasting. And I'm going to try to see um, which one for you to do. There's, I did, I did several different videos um, on this one of them was one that i did for peterson's bow hunting and i'm sure if you put in um john dudley mastering the release aid um that would be a very very good start for you to go um, the other thing is i've done several different live feeds which you can also be able to watch um you know on the on the video channel so um, the different live feeds can show you for sure, um, some of the different aspects to to where you should anchor, um, so forth. So um, there's one that is uh, also called Live Coaching Session from John Dudley on back tension. You'll be able to see a little bit of it there. But um, certainly the Mastering Release Aid one would be an important one for you to watch. And I'll also try to talk about this a little bit more in depth um, on an upcoming live feed, maybe even this one that I do here coming up. Um, so I appreciate the question. I have touched on that before. Um, that's why I really want to not spend too much time on that, but I did want to kind of make sure that you, that you heard from me and know where to go to find it. Um, next question I'm going to jump on here is from Steven underscore pew pew. Um, how about touch on setting up 
the ladies for success on the 3D trail and on the hunt. Sharon set up aerial broadhead distances. My girlfriend shoots a Defiant 31 at 40 pounds. Uses the same bow for 3D and for hunts. Um, would love to get your advice on what's the best setup for that. That's an awesome question, and it's actually one. Um, hey, Fred, just saw you made a comment on there. I can't read it sideways, but um, I'm, t- I'm simultaneously talking to people that are watching the live feed while I'm podcasting. Um, but uh, Sharon and Harry both shoot similar setups. Harry has actually grown in poundage here over the last few years, so so Harry's actually shooting about 10 pounds more than Harry. But for the longest time, Sharon actually shot 30 pounds. Um, she's a 26 and a half inch draw. She shot 30 pounds for quite a while. Um, we actually hunted at that weight too um, in several of the places where um, it was legal. Then we went into, we actually started hunting in some states where she needed to shoot 40 pounds. So we really worked her way up to 40. And for Sharon, she feels really comfortable with that weight because she doesn't have to she doesn't necessarily have to practice all the time to be able to pick up her bow and just be able to go out and shoot with me. And that's an important thing when it comes to women and kids is being able to make sure that they're comfortable and they're not shooting too much weight. You want them to be able to, to not really have to practice all the time. The reality is unless they're super into it and that's what they want to do with you every single day, then you really need to set them up to have a forgiving setup that's, that's friendly um, that's user friendly, and it's not going to be forcing them into bad posture or hitching the hip, or getting into proper improper form where they start slapping their arm. All that stuff's important. So, what I do with Sharon and Harry is they actually shoot um, right at about you know forty pounds or fifty pounds. I want to make sure that they can raise their bow to the target and draw the release hand back to the face. Um I may post a video or something of Sharon shooting today just so that you can kind of get your get a look at that. But um when it comes to the actual both of them shoot um both of them shoot tension activated releases only. That's all they've ever shot since the very first time they pulled on a string. Um so I would say if she's new, the silverback is going to be the perfect starting aid for her because you're, especially when you're brand new, it's the perfect way to start because you'll grow up using that release, learning to pull through the shot, learning to execute, and you know you're not going to have to worry about um, target panic in the future, which which is very very common, unfortunately. Um, as for the arrow, they're they're both shooting an Axis 600. Um, with Harry actually shoots um, a two inch Max Hunter, and uh, Sharon has either shot a two inch Max Hunter or a three inch Max Stealth Vane. Um, back when Sharon shot, well, back when both of them started out at 30 pounds and then got their way up to 40 pounds, they just shot a cut on impact head. Um, when they very first started, I actually put them in a, a G5 um, Montec just because it's got a great cut on impact head. Um, Sharon shot, uh, you know, 700 pound kudu with that. She shot a 500 pound uh, wildebeest with it, and both were 
great shots, um, had enough penetration to get through to the other side. And they also, with that arrow, it shoots a pretty decent speed even at that weight. Um, you know, it's not going to be as fast as ours, but it shoots a decent speed. And they've done pretty well on a 3D course. Normally when you have women or kids and they're shooting 3D your target for the first time, it's really, really helpful for them to have something where they're able to know the distance and be able to set their sight. In their situation, brand new starting out, I actually set them up with a single pin sight. Even though I'm not a big fan of single pin sights, when it comes to new archers, I think it's really good to be able to focus on centering your peep, centering your scope, and then just using the one pin at the distance. Now, it does get a little bit critical because, you know, if you're shooting that slower speed like that and you take it into a hunting situation and, you know, the animal's at 20 yards and you set your sight and then the animal moves to 23, um, it's going to be a big difference between 23 yards and 20 if you're only shooting 250 or 260 feet a second. So, um, you know, it's good from the aspect of you can really fine-tune it the main thing is, like with Sharon and Harry, I really focused on hunts where we could have control of a lot of the elements. For example, you know, for the first seven years they hunted, I didn't take them on spot and stock hunts. Um, even though I know that there's people that see a downside to hunting bears with bait, um, I think, one, I think it's a needed practice, especially where they do it, but also it's a very, very good element for brand new hunters that really want to focus on having control of a situation, being able to wait for the proper shooting angle, waiting for the, being able to perfectly know the distance, set the sight, all that stuff. Um, so it's really that situation or hunting hogs. If you can go and hunt hogs or javelinas, um, you know, a lot of times they're hunting them where they can, you know, they'll, they'll bait them with feeders. They're trying to get rid of as many as they can. Um, and then really get them, get them to where they enjoy that. Then I transitioned them into hunting on food plots where we would sit in blinds on food plots. Um, I would just put them in either a bale blind or one of my redneck blinds and we'd wait for them to come to food plots. I set them up on food plots where the food plot was narrow and long so that they were able to, you know, have shots within 25 yards and we would be able to make we'd be able to talk about this stuff like um we'd be able to talk about uh okay well you know he's 20 yards that angle's not quite right we need him to turn just a little bit more okay that leg came forward you know i want you to put your your you know and i actually would have the camera on a tripod so on my camera i would have a little crosshair on the center of my camera so I know where the center of the frame is and I would actually just zoom in on that animal and then I would just put the crosshair and I'd say okay right there's where you're going to want to aim that's where you want to make your shot and then they could see that on the screen and they could go over they could prep themselves pull back and make their shot it didn't it wasn't until probably they had been bow hunting about four to five years that we actually started to get into situations where we were in tree stands and deer were moving around and things were coming through. And then last year, Harry actually had his first spot and stock hog hunt. Um, Sharon had a spot and stock hunt too. So um, all that stuff, you know, really played in. But more or less, if you can get them at shooting 40 pounds, 
from 40 pounds to 50 pounds, you can have a great setup with an Easton Axis 600. And, you know, the closer they get to 50 pounds, you can start moving them into some different broadheads. Um, Sharon and Harry are both shooting um, trocars right now, muzzy trocars. That's a great little head. Um, some other he good heads for this are, like I said, Montex, um, Steel Force. Um, you know, there's several different ones. Anything with a cut on impact. Harry actually shot his first hog this year with an expandable. We used a Rage Plus P. Um, but he was shooting 50 pounds. It was only 20 yards, and he waited for a quartering shot. Um, so, you know, factor all that in. I think you'll you're gonna have a good hunt with her, and and uh, I think you guys are gonna gonna have a good time. The main thing is, you know, keep it close and keep it controlled, and really work on practicing with them on situations and scenarios. That's that's one thing I want to touch on too because. You know, with Sharon and Harry, um, for example, when we went on their first bear hunt, I actually set up a tree stand, put a ladder stand in the yard. I put a McKenzie, I bought a McKenzie bear target, put it down, made it quartering away, literally had like, I tipped over a big drum right there, had the thing quartering away, looking at the drum. And I actually spray painted a square that was the exact kill zone lung and heart and i said okay there this is your kill zone and so they would practice on that and what i did the reason i made it a square um, and i'll show those of you watching the live feed the reason i made it a square is because um like let's say this is a square right here i'm holding the square up what i would do is i would show them where they should aim if the target was broadside and then if the target started to quarter i would show them okay well if it's quartering you want to focus on the back side of the square because as that goes through you're going to actually contact the entire square the the entire you know vitals so i like having a square because if you're shooting above and you're shooting down you can focus on top edge of the square if it's quartering away back edge of the square if it if there is a slight quarter front of the square you know all that stuff is really really relative that's why I like you know I like the visualization of the square because I would go down I would turn the target quartering hard broadside I would bring the target close so they had to shoot further down on it and with all those things I would say okay right side of the square left side of the square top of the square and they just start to build this mental image of what the vital area looks like on that particular animal and it worked really really well so hopefully you put that to use and all's good um, I actually realized about five minutes ago I didn't have the power all the way up on my mic so <laughs> hopefully I'm able to boost the sound for the first 10 minutes of this podcast um, one of the many areas of trouble here when you're a podcaster and you're you know, mentally not awake in the morning. So uh, that was an awesome question, dude. Really appreciate it. Um, so the next one is Ibo Ibo Archery. So Ibo Archery, appreciate the question, man. Well, I don't know if you're a guy, but you got a. You actually got um, your profile picture is the Bigfoot at Reading. And for the first question of the day from McPherson J two thousand, 
If I were to say pick one tournament, only one tournament to go to for your first ever tournament, it would be Redding. The Redding shoot is by far the funnest overall archery experience that there is. It's all known distance. There's actually field. There's dots on the targets that are comparable to what the field dot size would be at every distance that the animal is. And it's bright orange. So, for example, this profile picture for Ibo Archery, he's got Bigfoot. That's about a 12-inch orange circle right between that sucker's nipples. And uh, you get to launch an arrow at 101 yards across the canyon at uh, this 12-foot-tall Bigfoot target. It's pretty cool. So, uh, anyway, he's saying, hey, Dud, can you give us your expertise knowledge on arrow flight um, when an archer is on a slant and the target is on the slant, um, the arrow seems to pull to the slant even when you're perfectly plumbed on all axes. Um, are the shots being pulled by gravity? Well, what happens a lot of time is, and I refer to it as you lose your bubble so one of the things when people come and I start working with more advanced archers, and this is one reason why the shot of the week is going to be so critical because these are elements that you really have to look at. These are elements that are critical for you to focus on and identify, identifying and in troubleshooting. That's the key to being a top level archer is to be able to step to a stake and have all these you know your brain kind of has to be like the terminator where you know your computer's bringing up all these these things of troubleshooting that you know yeah it looks simple it's a 40 yard shot but what are what are the things that can cause me to miss okay first things like that's why it's so important in your shot sequence your footing if all of a sudden your toes are pointing downhill you know, you're going to start to fall forward on the shot. There's a lot of things. Footing is one. The other one is obviously angle, shot angle. So one thing that you really have to get in the habit of doing, and this is also, this is, this is factoring in that for 100%, you absolutely have your sight leveled correctly um, with first, second, third axis, you really need to make sure that your bubble is square to the arrow. Um, while it's at full draw, you need to make sure that you know that your sight frame is at a 90 degree with your bubble, and then again that your bubble um, is perfectly square with the arrow. So looking over the top of the bow, we need this. We don't want this. We don't want this. We need this. And for those of you listening, I'm showing the people watching. And then you know when it comes to looking over the bow, pretty much. Both of the bubbles need to be parallel like this. If one bubble's out here, one bubble's here. And then when you look head on, you know, you've got your vertical frame and then you've got your sight level. Those have to be the same. Now, once you have those done, you can adjust the cant if you naturally cant your bow all the time. Um, and it'll still shoot true to center if the other axes are correct. But... <clears throat> I personally don't like to load my bow up that way. I like when it comes to stabilizers, which seems to be the question of the day every single day of the week. Um, when it comes to stabilizers, I really like to set up stabilizers that allow me to, to level myself with relaxing my bow hand and not having to force um, 
force myself into leveling the bow because if you're forcing yourself into have to level that bow then what happens is when that arrow starts to pass through it and the pressure comes off your hand the bow is naturally as the arrow is coming through the bow is going to start to self-correct because of all your stabilizers and essentially you can cause that arrow flight to start to detour so what i like to do is make sure that you have a bow that is is balanced well i always hang mine by the top um, I hang mine by the top. I'm just going to grab my bow right here. And I like to, if I hang my bow from the top cam, I want to be able to have my level in my bow center. I don't want to, um, I don't want to have to fight that over with torque to make it center. So that's a great way to do it. Um, actually there's, um, Dead Center Archery made a cool um, bow stabilizer system. I've got one. I need to um, I need to take that thing um, to the school for a live feed and show you guys how it works. You pretty much can put the bow in there. It's all built on a big swivel to where you can change your counterweights and everything to where the bow is sitting level without you manually having to alter that. And ideally, that is what you want. So with that in mind, if you're... If your axis is 100% correct, perfectly correct, then at that point, it's going to be critical that you get in the habit of drawing your bow with your top limb into the hill. So in other words, if you're standing there, you're a right-handed archer, you're standing there, the top of the hill is on the right, and it's sloping down to where the lower part of the hill is on your left, then what you want to do is you want to start out by actually turning your top limb into the hill. You lean that bow into the hill as you draw back and you try to maintain that position as you anchor, you come into your peep sight, you center your peep and your scope, you start to get your pin as close to the center of the target as possible and then once you're in that position I focus on I always like to focus on relaxing my front bow arm from my bicep forward because I don't want to have tension in my grip I actually once I'm at full draw I'll focus on the relaxing that bicep from the from the bicep forward and my front bow hand goes from having some tension to just totally going soft and when that happens, you'll see that gravity is just going to pull your top limb right into place. And if you've done your stabilizer set up the correct way, then it's going to help you and not hurt you. It's not going to fight you, so to speak. So that's, uh, that's my advice there. And I can just tell you, dude, that you need to make sure 100% that you're, you're definitely having your second and third axis correct. Now there's an ongoing question about whether I personally do a lot of my second and third axis leveling. I do, I've done them several ways. I've got an old um, specialty archery level that I really like. It's super simple and I travel with it. I always just keep it in my quiver if I need to. Then um, I also really like to use that bright sight leveler for just simple setting something up and doing it right on the table. The Hamsky level, um, sight leveler is also great. Um, it fits better on some sites than others. But what I'll say is 
sometimes and you know years ago the original Sherlock one it actually had a cord that came back and attached to the string and when you pulled your bow back you actually checked your second and third axis while you're at full draw and with some bows and some archers this is an important factor to have in now I personally don't do that just because I know with my Hoyts with my shoot through risers and with how I grip the bow and I can also tell by my stabilizer um, when I'm when I'm at full draw if my stabilizer is perfectly down the pipe and I can see that my arrow and my sight pin are all in an equal line then I really don't have to worry about second third axis leveling at full draw now if if you pull back and you notice your stabilizer off to the right side of your for sure right side of center or it starts I've seen some of the older bows to where the front stabilizer moves all the way outside of the the whole riser itself I've seen some bows where a 35 inch stabilizer you can see it on the right side of your riser that's all indicators of how much torque there is in your system um, and there's some bows out there that have a lot more than others. Um, one of the most common problems that I had working with some of the national shooters that I worked with last year was some of them switched over to, let's just say an, a newer bow company that's out there and it's an older type of bow design so to speak but it's a newer company let's just i'll say it that way but when you pull that bow back it's torsional stability and the stabilizer and the string swing it takes a while to stabilize and those types of setups are, are setups that are the most important setups when it comes to actually looking at needing that second and third axis done while you're at full draw and if you have that setup or if you naturally have hand torque and at full draw that second or third axis comes out of whack then you are going to have the problems that you discussed so that's stuff that you need to weigh out now I personally don't simply because of the reason I told you and um, I can I can say if you follow it that way it's not like every single archer goes to a field course and when they're shooting on a side hill, they have to aim off the, the target one way or off the target another way. If that's happening, then you're doing something wrong. It's probably your second or third axis, um, but I would say that it's probably, if, if you do have it set up correctly on a jig fixture at rest, then it's probably because you're applying torque when you actually come to full draw. So... That's uh that's my two cents. Hopefully it helps you out. Um, okay, we're gonna move into the next question here. Um, let's see. Trying to load up my questions. Uh, all right. So now we're gonna get a little bit more in depth. Um, I'm actually gonna I'm just gonna step away from the microphone for one second. I gotta I'm actually gonna grab an arrow so I can hold this while I explain it and. That way, people that are watching live right now is, um, yeah, I'm obsessed with the green, there's no doubt. Um, I'll be able to show some of the people watching the live feed what I'm talking about here. 
Okay, I'm back. So what we've got here is the next question um, is, let's see. Next question is related to barreled shafts. So there's a, there was actually a couple questions that I have that relate to the same thing. But the first one is um, came from Lights Out Crew is saying set it up and things to consider for barreled shafts like the ACE or X10. Um, when should we cut from the back um, to keep the barrel in the middle of the arrow to affect spine properly? So with the X10 or with this is an original X10 right here um, showing those watching the live feed. So um, the X10 you can see that it's actually smaller on the ends and as it goes further into the shaft you can see that diameter is actually bigger and then as it gets back to the end it gets smaller so this is what's called a barreled shaft it's thicker in the middle thinner on the ends um, ballistically the most superior arrow ever made um, definitely the most the most uh, or I should say it has the least um, wind resistance and wind drift or drag than anything out there um, the x10 or the pro tour among the best the ace was one of the original ones um, the difference between these is the x10 actually has very high mass weight so it's smaller in diameter than an ace but higher in mass weight but still has the ballistic characteristics of a barreled shaft so it's thicker in the middle so what makes these tricky is because the thickness is thickest in the middle or technically towards the back the back third of the shaft, it gets thicker and then thinner down on the ends. What makes it tricky is really knowing how to tune that arrow perfectly because what you have is with these arrows, as you cut off the back of the spine or the back of the arrow, I'm sorry, as you cut off the back of the arrow, you're, you get closer and closer and closer to where the taper is getting larger. So the, the more you cut off of the smallest part of the taper, the faster the spine of that arrow will accelerate. So in other words, the very ends of this arrow are pretty much the weakest part. They're the smallest. The closer you get to the center of that shaft, that's the thickest part. And it's built that way specifically because of the characteristics of a paradox of an arrow and how it flexes when it comes out and then as it goes through. So what you find is when these X10s were originally designed or the ACEs, they were originally designed for recurve shooters shooting fingers and what you have with a recurve shooter is you actually have a slightly different load on the back of that arrow when it's released. Um, and there's a couple reasons behind that. One is because they're shooting fingers. So when they're letting go of this arrow, it's actually having a paradox that's going. If you're looking straight over the top of the bow, their paradox will be going like this. Okay. Now with a compound archer and a cam system, that cam system is either going to ramp through or sometimes they rise up 
and then drop down. Sometimes they drop, come up, through, depending on the type of cam. Some are way better than others. But anyway, with the compound archer, um, if you look at the arrow from the side, that paradox comes up with a release. If you're shooting a mechanical release, it'll come up, then it'll come down. Whereas it's directly opposite for a recurve shooter, it goes left and right if you're looking over the top of the bow. So what people struggled with was when a compound archer grabbed these X-10s, they found that they were, even though the ballistics were far superior than what else was out there, the arrow wasn't responding true to spine as the same as like a parallel uh, a parallel shaft, like for example, an aluminum arrow or a 300, you know, a FMJ 300. It's just a, a parallel straight shaft. It's pretty easy to know what your pulling weight is, your arrow length, your point weight, and then boom, you get you get a you get to pick your arrow. But with these tapered shafts, what happens is for every inch that you cut off the back, it it's almost equal to cutting two inches off the front. So you can quickly get an arrow that's too weak, and within two inches, if you cut two inches off the back, you could almost instantly be too stiff. Um, so what people started to learn was you would slowly cut off the back of that shaft to help stiffen it, um, but then people also started to realize once they went beyond the point of it, it started to become too stiff, then it wouldn't shoot as good as it did at a different length. And obviously, um, as any construction person knows, once you cut a board, it's cut. Like, you can't really glue it back on. I've done that a few times. Um, so the same's true with this arrow. If all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, it helped a ton when I took one inch off the back, so I'm going to cut one more inch off. And I bet it's going to help even more. And then all of a sudden that arrow goes to just grouping worse than it did before. And here you're sitting there with a one-inch piece of a of a $250 dozen arrow shaft in your hand. So that's why I started to, to develop what I call the hill method. And I did an article that was the hill remastered. And I actually did, um, I don't think I've released it yet. So I'll do that today. Um, there's actually a, one of the last two episodes of the Knocked and Ready to Rock segments were really based on how to properly adjust your bow so that your spine would match properly. Um, I don't know why I haven't made those last two segments public, but I'll make sure that happens. Um, so what you want to do with these barreled shafts what I did first was I would get an arrow, I would cut it. I wouldn't cut it so short that, um, and my first cuts honestly were always off the front. Okay. And then what I would do is I would cut that arrow to where I had about two inches, um, two to three inches to play with on continuing to cut that arrow without it being too short for my actual bow and for the arrow rest. So once I cut that arrow, the next thing that I would do, and there's two different ways to do it, the next thing I would do would be to either take points that are available for those arrows, and I would put a point in that was about 25 grains heavier than my starting point, which I kind of always started at 100 just because it was easy. And I would go up to, you know, 
well, I could go up to a 125 max um, on the standard points. And when I did that, I would shoot a group and I would see how they plotted left and right. And from there, once I did that, I would then um, take that same arrow and I would go down to about a 75 grain point and I would shoot that arrow and see how it responded. And what that's doing is it's immediately saying, okay, if I weaken the spine, what does it do? If I stiffen the spine, what does it do? And you're going to learn really quick by your left and right margin, your left and right misses, um, exactly what you should or should not do. Um, you know, it's going to become really clear really fast. And from there, you're going to have to start fine-tuning that. Now, another way to do it is with your bow poundage. So three pounds on your pulling weight is almost equal to one spine size. So if you took that first arrow and you took your bow and you cranked it up to three pounds heavier and you shot that exact arrow, if the grouping left to right was worse, then you need to know right away, okay, if the, the grouping's worse, I'm going to now take my poundage down and see if it gets better. And all of a sudden, if you go back to your baseline, back to your starting point, and then go about a pound and a half to three pounds under that, see what it does for that arrow. So if you go less poundage, and all of a sudden, boom, the arrow is grouping better for you, now you realize, okay, this arrow likes it when I stiffen, when I've stiffened it. So at that point, if you have the point weight that you like, and like I said, you took your poundage down about three pounds, and all of a sudden that arrow is now saying, oh yeah, I like this a lot better. Then at that point, what you can do is you could take your arrow, cut one inch off the back, and then take your poundage back up to your baseline shoot your arrow again same process go up then go down if all of a sudden you go back down and wait and it shoots even just a little bit better than it did before then you know once again okay this bow still wants this arrow just a little bit stiffer so at that point you can make the decision okay if i go from this 110 grain point down to a hundred grain point, does it get even better? And if the answer is yes, then at that point you can either stay with that hundred grain point or you can go back to maybe taking a half inch off the back of that shaft, going back to your full grain point, back to your baseline of poundage, shooting the arrow. So it's it's a tremendous amount of trial and error. Um, once you really know how your configurations are, you can be within that very close range for quite a bit. Um, I'll just tell you, um, there was, there was a pretty noticeable difference between when I went with my, when I shot my Matthews and when I shot my Hoyts on what type of barreled shafts worked really well for me. Um, back behind me here for those watching, that's, that's when I won the um, gold medal at the Arizona Cup right back there. And I actually shot ACEs 
for that event. I wasn't shooting X-10s. I was a 3D archer. That was my first ever target tournament. And um, I literally took an ACE arrow, which I knew how to tune because I I tuned ACEs in the IBO um, because I wanted the speed. An ACE arrow is very, very fast. Um, what I will tell you about an ACE arrow and what I really like about it um, and also what I liked about the pro field arrow that Easton made was that it you can get them with a very long shank that goes inside of the shaft with screw-on bulge points. And what that did was it came with a big variety of screw-on tips that worked with that shaft. Now, the other thing, too, is that, sh- that the bulge point um, insert was very long so that insert would actually change the spine compared to a standard stainless steel insert um, or a stainless steel point so because the length was twice as long how far it went in the shaft so that's a whole nother thing that you can do as well Um, and this is something that relates to another one of the questions that i saw here on the feed um, was someone was asking the question um Let's see. I don't see it right here. Close. I'll get. I know. I think the question was something about: um, Are the tungsten points for the X10s really worth it? So the tungsten points are made of pure tungsten. They're match grade points. They're very expensive. But what's nice about them is they're actually shorter and they're stronger. They don't bend like a stainless steel point, and they go to 120 grains. Um, whereas the stainless steel points only go to 110. But what I will tell you is if you take um, a tungsten point and break break off the little piece to where it's 110 grains, if you shoot a 110 grain tungsten point versus a 110 grain stainless point, they will shoot a little bit different. And the reason they do is because one is longer in the shaft than the other. So technically, the stainless steel version stiffens that arrow shaft more than the tungsten version. So you have to factor that in. Is that tungsten necessarily better? It's not necessarily better. It is a little bit more durable, and it does go to 120 grains. So if you want to have the maximum front of center possible on an arrow, then you can do all those tests with a 120 grain point in there the entire time and find the perfect recipe that works at 110 grain or 120 grains. Now, if you're not worried about that, I can tell you that there were there were times in my career where I shot the stainless steel points, the cheaper ones, and that is what I shot. And the reason I did was because I was like right on this fine line. I wanted to shoot 60 pounds exactly because my holding weight on my bow was perfect for me. I felt really comfortable on my hold and my aim. And I just know that the 110 grain stainless stiffened that arrow just a little bit more than what the tungsten did. However, there was other times where the tungsten arrow was, or the tungsten point clearly worked better for me. So... That, if you're wanting to find that out, it's kind of, that's a great thing to where if you find, you know, really, if you're wanting to start experimenting with barreled shafts, um, finding mismatch or finding small numbers of them on eBay for a cheap price, 
um, or like on Archery Talk or something like that, it's a good idea because you could get like, say you just get three arrows in a 410 spine, you can take those three arrows and you can experiment around with them. And if you find a combination you really like, then you can go ahead and buy that um, that arrow exactly in that spec and then you've got a fresh dozen. The one thing you're going to want to make sure you ask people, um, and I can tell you, sorry Justin, I'm going to burn you down. Uh, my buddy Justin Tab, he, um, he actually had a cheaper target, so he was blowing through his target and kind of hitting this wall that was behind the target a little bit. And he knew that he was kind of the front of the point was kind of hitting that wall just a little bit, but he didn't realize that he was actually stress fracturing the front of his arrows. So um, I actually took his arrows and threw those things out because um, I just told him, like, you, you really have to check for cracks. So the main thing, if you're going to buy some on eBay, tell people that you do, you will expect them to be straight when you spin them. And you're going to tell them that you want to make sure there's no cracks or car, um, carbon damage on the front or the back of the shaft. Um, for those of you watching the live feed, um, I'm going to say bye to you guys because um, Instagram's telling me that they're ticking me down to a minute and 20 seconds left. And you guys are going to be gone. But make sure... Everyone, everyone tune in tonight at 7 o'clock Central Time. It's the 15th of, um, of February. Make sure you tune in at 7 Central Time. I've got a really cool live feed I'm going to do tonight. want to make sure everybody's there. And uh, thanks, everybody, watching live. That was cool. You guys are going to get cut off in one minute. So uh, sorry about that. But, um, yeah, with the X10s, ACEs, there's so many different things to think about. Um, I know that if you're trying to get the most perfect shaft as possible, um, then it's tough because you don't want to spend all that money and not get it right. But at the same sense, what's really cool about it is you have the ability on an arrow to do infinite adjustments. And honestly, this, this sort of expertise is a reason why a lot of people that are on a super high level... Um, are here because you know I've over the years I've built a, a plethora of X10s and ACEs all built with different configurations to where I can literally just shoot a whole pile down there and uh, I can tell right away what arrow they need. So um, that's pretty much where you need to start. They are awesome a ACEs. ACEs are a good place to start because an ACE is, is cheaper than an X10. Super fast arrow. Um, if you're going to go and shoot IBO tournaments and you're not worried about shaft, you know, actual diameter of the shaft, or if you're going to go and shoot Redding for the first time and you don't have the ability to, to pay for a set of X10s, uh, then an ACE is a great place to start. Uh, next question here is from... The Romanian Thunder. Um, hey, I have a sight that only goes out to 60 yards, but I want to shoot 100 plus just for fun and obviously not for hunting. But my bow shop said that there's no point in shooting out that far. Um, is it is it better for me just to practice at 60 yards as my max? 
what I'll tell you is for distance, the further you go, it's like a magnifying glass. The further and further and further you shoot, the bigger you're making this magnifier glass, the more power you're putting to the glass. So you're starting to, um, you're really starting to magnify mistakes. And that's why so many people, one, I think it's funner to watch an arrow fly at a longer distances. It's certainly more rewarding um, having an arrow that, it's certainly more rewarding that when an arrow um, is flying a long distance and then finding the mark. You certainly, you certainly feel way better about that. Um, so what I would recommend is if you feel like you're bored at those closer distances, then for the summertime when you're just practicing, as long as you have the ability to shoot at these distances, you know, if you have, if you have a five pin sight, that's going to be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. What you could do is you could actually take that whole sight housing and move it down enough to where your top pin is actually your, you know, say your 40 yard pin and then readjust all your pins to where the closest you can shoot is 40 yards. You'll have 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. So now you've gained that extra 20 yards and you're able to shoot some of those distances. If you want to shoot 100, then you may have to move it move it even more. But utilize the site that you have to really practice all throughout the off season. And if you get to the point where you really like that, um, then you can buy a movable site. You can buy a multi-pin site that has adjustability. Or you can go ahead and move that site back up to where you just re-site in for your 20 to 60 yards for your hunting season um, from an ethics point of view, but you've really maximized um, your practice throughout the summer by shooting some of those longer distances and being able to, you know, improve your mistakes. That's one thing that long distance shooting really does is it magnifies when you drop your bow arm or if you're shooting left and right a lot, you can start to identify, do I have facial pressure? Do I have hand torque? There's all kinds of stuff like that that goes into it. Um, but yeah, that would be my recommendation. Um, next question here is from Colin. I don't Colin Groarkey, maybe. Um, he's asking about four veins versus three veins for indoor archery. So funny enough, right now, um, I'm actually setting up a bow for me to shoot in tonight's live feed. Um, I'm taking my Prevail and I'm going to gut this thing out and I'm going to put SVX cams on it. And what I've done is I'm actually going to remove my launcher blade. I've got a knock-on elevate rest uh, with the standard launcher. And this is what I love so much about these rests. I'm telling you, it's the best rest out there. Um, I'm actually going to take this rest. I'm going to go to the freak bar, which brings me brings my rest back another three inches behind the, the tech riser on my Hoyt. And so I'm going to bring that rest way back so that I can maybe do a little torque tuning if I want. And I've actually, I'm going to leave it in the fall away. This is really new for me on my target bows. I have shot fall aways. But for an indoor setup, I haven't, and I'm going to try because I did a custom build for a buddy of mine, and it worked awesome. Um, I did the the freak bar. I came back. I shot it as a fallaway or a limb-driven style fallaway, 
and I went to a four fletch indoor arrow. Um, so instead of having a four inch feather, I've got a four fletch of the three inch max stealth vein. So instead of having three four inch fletches, I've got four three inch fletches and it shoots like an absolute dart. I mean, it, well, it flies better than a dart. But uh, it shoots really awesome, so I'm going to try to duplicate that same exact build on my particular bow, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be really happy with it. Um, the next question here is from Tug underscore Boat. You're asking about arrow rests and sights for beginners. Um, for sights, one of the best sights out there for a beginner is the IQ sight because it has a little, it's called a retina lock, and this retina lock has a small black dot that's in the center of a fluorescent green bubble and if you don't have your hand in a perfect position then your black dot is not in the center of the green so it identifies hand torque or facial pressure it's a great reference tool it's a multi-pin sight um, they've got three different um, pretty much three different quality grades based off your price level um, but the IQ site is a great site, mainly because that retina lock is really, really nice. When it comes to arrow rests, honestly, I'm telling you, I'm really, really happy with this knock-on elevate arrow rest. It's an awesome rest. Um, the reason I have it is because I tried several different rests last year. I spent a whole year trying different arrow rests, um, and the basis of the elevate was an original AAE rest. Um, I made a bunch of changes to it, made some changes on some different brackets, some different fittings. Also, I you know made it come standard um, at a certain angle for the whale tail, um, and then also changed the brackets so that you can go to the lower limb for limb-driven system. And I really, really like it. Um, they're on the Knock on Archery.com website. They're available right now. And if you're going to compare them to, say, a QAD or um, a Hamski rest, they're at a better price as well. When you actually compare the Elevate, which is pretty much the premier rest right now that, that's being made, versus the top-of-the-line Hamski or the top-of-the-line QAD, um, the, you know, the ones that actually have micro-adjustability um, and that are fully aluminum, those are... You know, it's a great rest for the money. Um, let's see here. Um, next question would be, how do I set up target stabilizers? Um, this is coming from Matt Smith. I'm actually going to do a little thing on this. I, I need to, earlier I talked about that, uh, that bracket that I have from Dead Center Archery. I'm going to put this on my list um, for, for a, a future live feed. So I can show you how to do that. The other thing you were asking about was mental tips um, and how to be more dynamic in, in competition um, and you know dealing with tournament tur tournament pressure. So I did a podcast with EJ um, Feister and go back and look for that podcast. It's probably within the last twenty podcasts. EJ is one of the is an unbelievable coach for the PGA. Um, him and I talked through a lot of um, things regarding the mental aspect and that sort of thing. And then um, A6 Legit uh, is saying he wants to hear about spring turkey hunting. Anything 
spring turkey hunting. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm making the official announcement that for knock on season eight, the infamous um, world champion turkey belt, the knock on turkey belt for this year's turkey belt contest, the competition is going to be between myself Jim Miller from the UFC, Ray Borg from the UFC, my good buddy Tornston Luth, and Jed Larkin from Under Armour. So, uh, oh, and last but certainly not least, we're going to bring in Gone Wild Outdoors. Andrew Goo has gotten an invite. So the turkey belt is officially on the line. And I've got my German buddy, Tornston. We've got two UFC fighters. We've got Andrew Goo. And we've got Jed Larkin from UA. And it's going to be game freaking on. And a lot of you are going to get to see some behind-the-scenes live feeds. We'll probably do some live feeds from the blinds. And that is going to take place April 17th to the 20th. So... All right, everybody, I'm going to check out. Um, Hopefully, the first part of this podcast is not really low in volume. If it is, that's my fault. I was trying to multitask. But, um, hey, appreciate everything. I've, uh, I've got to go fill this Yeti cup back up and go from there. I'm Oh, another thing I'm super excited about, not really supposed to tell you. That's my stomach growling. It's, I think it's because I just had thought in my head. But I've got a brand new Traeger outside. I got a, I got a beta. It's, it's actually numbered. And I've been cooking on this brand new Traeger that's going to be released in almost one month. A month and a half is the official release date. I'm actually um, going to be out at Traeger in Salt Lake to give you guys a first look at this thing and what's I can't say anything about it other than the fact of it's at a whole new level of of pellet grills, whole new level of Traeger, and it's going to be something that all of us within the Knock On Nation community can utilize together. Pretty cool. So thanks everybody so much. Appreciate it and knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com